please join me in a word of prayer? God, it is exciting to see your upper story and our lower story just unfolding from Genesis as we go through the whole Bible. Lord, thank you for putting into perspective the reality of the universe, the reality of time, your intent for us from creation and our rebelliousness and our sin. And yet, despite our brokenness, you, you come after us and you never let us go. You refuse to give up on us and we thank you for that. So here we are, we sit here and maybe not able to offer you the best, but we offer you just the way we are. And God, help us to not only see you, but help us to encounter you, to be transformed by you and your son. And God, help us to have a taste of your grace this morning. We pray these things, God, in the name of your son, who is the lamb. Amen. If I were to uh, tell you this story, uh, true story, there was a man who had an axe, and he broke through the front door. And inside the house was the young couple scared with a little child. And he barged in. What would you think? <laughs> so the question is, who is this man? Uh, what does he want? And why is he doing this? And John Phipps gets the prize. You see, when you know only part of the story, it, it seems you could jump to any conclusions. But when you realize there is this bigger story and a fuller story that we will never see, we're never going to see the full picture of what God is going to do, what he is doing. We will never know until we get to the Lord in heaven. But we have to trust that while we're here, even when things don't make sense, that God is still good, that God is still loving, and that God is still holy and will bring, pre prevail over evil. And that is this idea of the Bible, that there is this constant upper story of what God's been doing and this lower story. And as we look at this, the truth of it is our life, we're always in this lower story, so we could get bitter, we could get cynical, we could get dis fall in despair, but God is still good. And sometimes, you know, Christians, we say this in our church too, we say God is good and people respond all the time, but I'm telling you, no matter how exciting that is to say, it is so much harder to live out this idea that even now God is good. So we're going into Exodus, and the story has progressed, and in the lower story, Egypt has become a threat to God's new nation that he's building up. It's been 400 years. Just put that into perspective. How old is America? All right, 1776 to now. So 400 years. And I'm thinking after year 200, what's Israel thinking? God, there's not much happening here. <laughs> you know, God, we're, we're starting to get a little pressure and heat from the Egyptians. And it says the Egyptians saw Israel grow, that they got threatened. So a Pharaoh rose up who didn't know Joseph from 400 years. You could give him some understanding for that. And what he said was, he was so threatened, he says, every Hebrew boy that is born, you must throw into the Nile, but let every girl live. Those are tough times, moms when you have a child that by law and mandate, if you have a son, as soon as he's born, you throw him into the Nile to be eaten by crocodiles or to drown. I mean, you, this is the society that they're living in. So Egypt is a threat to God's great building of a nation, or was it? 
You see, in the lower story, we could get caught up with God. It's been 400 years. If there is a God, he's not doing anything for us. Bible doesn't tell us anything beyond that. So here's the good news. Do you think God is surprised by this predicament? I know, I think we know this answer, but can we say it? Does God get surprised by the hardship in your life? Does he look at you and go, oh, I am so sorry. I was focusing here, and then I didn't pay attention to you, and then you kind of, I am so sorry. How did that happen? Uh, you know, does God get surprised by the things that we've, we've stumbled into? I don't think God causes us to sin, but God definitely, certainly doesn't get surprised. So here's something striking. If you look at Genesis 15, if you go a few hundred years back, this is what God said to Abraham. Genesis chapter 15, verse 12 through 14. This is God telling Abraham, I'm going to build a great nation, and I'm going to foreshadow something to you that's going to happen to your people. As the sun was setting, Abram fell into deep sleep, and a thick, dreadful darkness came over him. Then the Lord said to him, listen, know for certain that for 400 years, your descendants will be strangers in a land, in a country not their own, and that they will be enslaved and mistreated there. But I will punish that nation they serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. Did you know God called it? I mean, he is the, I want to know what he says about the Super Bowl game today. Who is going to win? Who is the MVP? I want to know. But God predicted this. This was not a surprise. He didn't cause it, but he says, I have it under control. So Israel is suffering in slavery, but yet God is it's all part of his plan so what is god doing here he's not caught off guard he's not surprising what is his intent there's two things at least that we could see that god is trying to do here number one he's trying to reveal who he is to this world more and more that there is a god i am he there is no other but the second one we'll touch upon at the end is god is trying to reveal a plan for absolute deliverance from sin and he's going to touch upon that through this episode in Egypt. So, did you know God wants to reveal himself to you more and more? You know, we have this image of God. I, I wonder if we all had a colored paper and we said, hey, draw a picture of God. What, what, what would you draw? You know, children would draw like a grandfather, old man with white beard. Um, maybe they'll draw somebody nice with a big smile walking. And what, what do you picture about God? What do you picture? So this is what God wants to show us. We learned... There's three ways that in Exodus that God reveals himself to his people. Number one, do you remember Moses grew up? So he was the Hebrew slave girl's baby. And instead of throwing him to the Nile, she made a little basket covered with pitch, sent it down the Nile, and Moses' big sister ran down, saw it. You know the story. And then who came and saved this basket baby? Pharaoh's daughter of all people. And then Pharaoh's daughter's like, oh, there's a baby here. And then she happens to see who? Moses' sister, God's so good. And then Moses' sister has a wherewithal to say, oh, I'll go get his mother. And she was like, go, yes, let's do that. So Moses' mother, I'm not sure if you realize this, she gets paid. She gets paid. She gets paid to take care of her own baby that should have been killed. Moms, raise your hand if you'd like to get paid <laughs> to raise your kids I mean, how good is God? So, you know that story. So, 
Moses grows up, and he's named Moses because it means drew out of a Nile water, and then he becomes this great noble, and then he realizes, he sees people, the Hebrew people being, um, being abused, and then he intervenes, and he kills one of the Egyptians, buries him in the sand, and then a few days later, he sees two Hebrews fighting. He says, why, why are you fighting? You're the same people. That's a great, that's a, you could write a book about that for nations and churches. Why are you fighting each other? You know, you're the same people. And then they say, well, are you going to kill us like you killed that Egyptian? So Moses has this identity crisis, and out of fear, he runs away. And some people say for 40 years, he lived in the desert. What was his job for 40 years? Scholar, preparing for a war. He was a shepherd. Some of you are in that kind of time period. God, there's nothing going on. I'm just sitting here. I'm just doing the same old thing. When's my big shot? When's my chance? And you don't feel like it's coming, but I don't know. I think God has a bigger perspective. We just have to be still. And then so God calls Moses back, and then he comes. And the way God calls Moses, you know the story? He goes, he's shepherding. He sees a glowing light, and he goes there. What does he see? The burning bush. Uh, I still think the Ten Commandments, Charlton Heston is still one of the best depictions of it. And then here's how God reveals himself to Moses. What should I say? Who is the God? Who, what's your name that I could take to Israel that they'll believe me? And then God says, I am. You see, what is God revealing himself in that name? I am who I am. And he's saying that to you and I today. You know who I am? Before time, that was me. I am the one that came even before anything started. That's who I am. And the three weeks ago, when we looked at creation of the world, scientists are trying to find out where did this universe come from? Did it always exist? And they're finding out through Hubble telescopes that this world is expanding. There was a big explosion. There was a starting point. They don't know who pushed the button, but we do. And they're saying, well, we don't want to believe that. We want to believe in science because there can't be a God. So every time they find new discoveries, it points back to you there is a great i am you see you can't make this explosion and make beautiful solar systems you can't make a planet like earth be just the right distance from the sun so that there's life so we don't freeze to death nor do we burn up like beef jerky and we are living in this perfect environment through this great i am so god is saying moses you tell them this i am the god i am we need to hear that today in the 21st century. Who is this God? Is this a Christian thing? Is this one of many religions? The Bible's telling us the God we worship, it's he's the great I am. Amen? He is before and after. We can't figure him out. We never will. Our brains can't handle that. But he is who he says he is. He is the one who started all this, and he is true. So Moses is, sees God as this I am, and God sends him to e Egypt, and what you see God doing in Egypt, remember Moses goes, let my people go. There's whole songs and plays, plays. And Pharaoh says, no, I will not let your people go. And Moses like, just please, just one worship in the desert, just one worship. And Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So you know the story, the 10 plagues. What is God doing there? I never saw this, but if you look at each of the 10 plagues, they weren't just random hardships. They weren't just random you know, pestilence. God was trying to reveal himself to Egypt. You know how many gods Egypt has? Thousands. 
And for every plague, God is jabbing at Egypt and saying, this is your God, let me show you what kind of God I am. Let's run through it just really quick. In the, in the plagues, the first plague was the Nile was turned to blood. And there's a God that Egyptians believe called Happy and Isis, the God and goddess of the Nile. And God is saying, that's your God, let me show you what I can do to the Nile. I can bring death, I can bring blood. The plague of the frogs, Egyptians believed in a goddess, Hagit, who is a goddess of birth. And in the statue of Hagit, there's a human body with the head of a, a frog. And God is saying, that's your God, let me show you what kind of God I am. Nats symbolizes the God of the desert, Set, that Egyptians believed in. Flies, God Re, son of God, Uetjit, possibly represented by a fly. Fifth plague, death of livestock. Egyptians believed in Hathor, the goddess with a cow head, Apis, the bull of God, and God is saying, they're nothing compared to me. He goes on, boils, this goddess of disease that Egyptians worship, Sekhmet, hail. Egyptians believed in a god, Nut, the sky goddess, and Set, god of storms. And lastly, and two more, locusts represented Osiris, god of the crops and fertility. And lastly, before the last one, the tenth plague, three days of darkness, Egyptians believed in Ra, the sun god. That's your god? I could control him. I could contain him. And what God is doing to Egypt and Israelites is this. The God that you worship, you better be sure that the God you worship is a true and living God. I think that's a good message for us, even there for 21st century today. What do you worship? I think Rick Warren says this. Rick Warren says, we are all designed to worship. The only choice you have, that I have, that we have, is what will you worship? I'm going to say that one more time. We are all designed to worship something. The only choice you and I have is, what will you worship? And you know how you know what you worship? It's pretty easy in 21st century now. Where does your money go? <laughs> Where does your time go? And what do you stress about the most? That'll tell you what you really worship. You could go to church, but when you are consumed by your career, your money, your kingdom, your building, you could probably guess your God is not big enough as our God. So, you know, sometimes young people, um, they worship when they get a boyfriend or girlfriend at a young age. You've all been there. Don't you pretend you're... But, you know, when they get that first love, they're consumed in thought with time and energy. Do you remember those days that we used to talk on the phone for like five hours? Was that just me? <laughs> Liars. Okay. Back then, by the way, we didn't have unlimited date, like phone cellular. So you get that and you get a $100 phone bill. Oh, man. And then we, so we live in a world where there are gods. And God is trying to break through and saying, listen, is your God big enough? I wonder sometimes he says, good, I, well, I don't want to offend you. But is your God big enough to save and deliver you? And one of the biggest problems we have is when we consider ourselves as God, we come to that point, we realize we're in despair. You know why? Because we do recognize we need a bigger God than what we've been holding. Money doesn't save us. Our reputation doesn't save us. Our wit doesn't save us. So we resort to something else. 
And what God's trying to reveal to Egypt is, you have all these gods, let me show you who the true living God is. So the tenth plague is stunning, because what was the tenth plague? This was brutal, right? The firstborn of each family will die. The firstborn son of each family will die. And the significance of that is the Pharaoh lost his own son. And who do Egyptians consider to be their gods? One of many gods, even the Pharaoh. But God's deliverance is revealed even in the story of tragedy of God wiping out the firstborn son. So I want to turn to Exodus 12, what we read today. God is calling them out. I'm going to come in, and there will be death in every family, every firstborn son. Death is coming as judgment of all gods. This is not just God being angry. This is God bringing in judgment to say, truth will prevail. Um, You know, sometimes people have struggles reading the Bible because they see God doing these things. And I think every single one of us will agree, if you see somebody murder 20 people with a hatchet, would you say, let's show kindness and let him go? I mean, embedded in every single one of us, even the best of us, you see a crime, you will not say, you know, he was just being human. Where does that come from? In each of us, there is this image of God to say there's something evil, there's something unacceptable, there has to be justice. If you didn't have that, we called you a sociopath, literally. That's what it is. They have no measure of what is normal. And when you look at humanity in all our fallenness, you and I are not perfect, and we can sense generally what is good and bad. You go to God who is good and holy. How will he deal with sin? He has to judge it. God will not sit back and let people kill each other and worship and deviate to other gods. So therefore, God says, I'm going to come and bring judgment on Egypt and every household. This is what I want you to do. It's a a weird plan. If you don't do this, you're going to be subject to the judgment as well. I want you to get a lamb. I want you to slaughter it. And I want you to take the blood and put it over the doorpost. And you saw the story. And then the death will come, right? Can, Can I ask you something? This is interactive. What will come that night to bring death to the firstborn sons of each household? Angel of death. Hollywood, maybe like a fog. What, what, what others? What, what came? What, what's coming that night? Did you catch this in Exodus? What we just read today? Let me read it for you one more time. On that night, the boogeyman <laughs> will come. No, just listen. What's going to come? What's going to bring judgment because of false gods and because of sin, because of foolishness of people, of evil? What's going to come to bring judgment on that? Exodus 12, on that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn of both people and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are, and when I see the blood, I will pass over you. What does a holy and a good God do? He judges sin. 
And that's good news and bad news for us. The bad news is, raise your hand if you are sinless. Being a good God, he will not just say, I love you, you love me, let's all start a family, (laughs) la-di-da. He has to come and judge sin. So when he's coming to Egypt, he sees their oppression of his people. He sees their idolatry. He sees that they consider themselves to be God. He's not going to just sit back and he says, if they're not going to resist, if they're going to be stubborn, here's what's going to happen. I will come and I will strike down every firstborn. But where I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over. And this is where the Jewish people get that Passover, right? What saved them? Their paint job on their doorpost? No. What saves them? It's that there was something that shed its blood to death as an atonement for this household's sin. What does the Bible teach us? If you look at the Bible, this is a foreshadowing of something beautiful. That God is going to not let sin go by. He is not going to give us a free pass because he's a nice God. He is a nice God. And here's what the good news is. He doesn't let us get away with sin, but he provides us a means. Let me read for you three passages. 1 Corinthians 5, 7. We're not Jewish, so how does, how does our sin get atoned for? 1 Corinthians 5, 7, according to Paul. For Christ, our Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Amen? We have a sacrificial Passover lamb. You didn't even know that, did you? Like, Dad, we have a lamb? I didn't know that. And Paul is saying, you do, and I do, and the world does. His name is Jesus. John the Baptist, when he first was doing ministry and he sees Jesus, what does he say when Jesus walks by? Hey, cuz! Right? No. They're cousins, but he says this. The first thing he says, behold, he stops his ministry. Stop, stop, stop. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not just a nice teacher, not just the next revivalist. He is the Lamb of God, the one that 3,000 years ago was pointing to. And this is in the future, Revelation 5. Listen to this. This is John who got an image of heaven and an image of what's going to look like at the end. And this is what John says in Revelation 5. Then I looked and heard the voices of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000, They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they were saying, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Who is that Lamb sitting on the throne? It's Jesus Christ. You see, what God is revealing to us today through Egypt and Israel, it's there is a God. He is bigger than you could fathom. But this God judges sin. He has to judge and condemn sin in each of us. He will not let you simply slide because you're a nice person. But this God doesn't just let us stay in judgment. He says, take my son, the Lamb of God, for you. And in his blood shed on the cross of Calvary, we don't have a doorpost that has blood stains on it. We have two wooden beams that stand with the shed blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 
You see, the question is, what saves us? It's not church. It's not good intentions. What saves you? Well, he's a nice guy. Nothing can save us except for the Lamb of God who covers us with his blood. Salvation only comes through Jesus Christ. One of my favorite verses, the verse that I used for my ordination worship was Galatians 2.20. I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. But right after that, it says this, Galatians 2.21. For if righteousness could be found apart from the law, Christ died for nothing. You know what that's saying? If God could have rescued us from sin without sending Jesus, he would have done it. But your goodness, your kindness, our religiosity can't save us. The basis and the foundation of our salvation is Jesus Christ. So friends, I want to ask you, we're going to be taking the communion in a few minutes. Every month we come to the table and this is what we're confessing. Jesus, I believe you are the Lamb of God. I believe you died and you shed your blood on the cross. I believe you rose again, and I am not just believing that here, but I'm trusting it with all my heart. You are the basis of my hope for my sin. You're the one who frees me from this. And I thank you for your grace, because I did not deserve this. This is what this communion table is. And this is what that story from 3,000 years ago is pointing to you and I today. God is God, and he is coming to rescue us, and he has rescued us in Jesus Christ. And can the people say amen? amen? I'm not sure how that makes you feel, but it makes me do two things. It doesn't make me want to get religious. It makes me want to love God and worship him and give him myself. To say, Jesus, I'm all yours. There is no other God worthy of my life than you. And this is why we call the word devotion, commitment, dying to ourselves. It doesn't become hard for those who get Jesus. It becomes a pleasure. Take all of me. Take my life and let it be consecrated just for thee. Would you join me in prayer? God, we gather every Sunday and sometimes we get caught up with the form that we forget the functions. Sometimes we get caught up with the routine that we forget the meaning that these things point to, that the cross is not an emblem of beauty, but it's an emblem of shame that you redeemed. That we are sinful people, not trying to become better and more good, but God, we are hopeless in our sin. And that our only salvation comes from your son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. So God, as we see a redemption and deliverance of people from Egypt, we thank you that that's the image that we have now, that we are enslaved. And so we ask you to bring to us, Father, that hope, that reminder that we could endure all pain, sufferings, and trials because if this God was willing to give his life for us to save us, what can we complain about? So God, would you be the deliverer for some of us today? Would you come and would you allow us to trust you and see you and to worship you and, and to believe that you are indeed the Christ who died and rose again?
Would you renew the faith of those Christians whose faith have gone dry and old? Would you renew our faith to say, that is my God. He is the great I am. I will not fear. And would you allow our church to have a vibrance that this is the message of the good news to carry to this world, that there is a God, there is a judgment for evil, but this God has made a way out for us. May we carry that good news so that it's heard, that it's seen, and that people can believe. Thank you for calling us out. Help us to be that church. We stand by your grace and mercy, and we pray these things humbly, in the name of the Lamb of God, who took our sins away. And as he taught us to say,